Hear the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 6, 9 through 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall glean thoroughly as a vine, the remnant of Israel. Like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. And they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, This morning, we are beginning a brand new sermon series, Studying the Protestant Reformation. Now, why would we do that? This is a church. It's not history class. Why are we studying something like that? Well, if you've been with us all year, you might recall that the theme of this year is gospel renewal. It was the 10-year anniversary of our church, and I felt that we needed to be reminded who we are, um, why we're here, why we do what we do. Um, It's really easy after 10 years of ministry, and God has blessed us in a lot of ways. Um, We've been successful in a lot of ways. Things have grown, and God's been really good to us. It's really easy after 10 years to just kind of settle in, forget all the reason why we're doing what we're doing, and this is just what we do, and kind of coast, put it in autopilot. Well, we don't want to do that. So we've been asking God for a gospel renewal, a renewed sense of purpose, of mission, of his presence to us, to empower us for the next decade of gospel ministry in the Quad Cities. So towards that end, we studied the Beatitudes and the way of Jesus. We studied the fundamentals of Sacred City Church. We studied how we change during the summer. And then for the last few months, we've been studying why we do what we do in our liturgy on Sunday morning. Well, the reality is, if we're going to study the concept of gospel renewal, then we have got to go way back and study the Protestant Reformation. In a very real sense, we are here this morning Worshiping God the way that we are because of something that happened 504 
years ago. 504 years ago. It was October 31st. You could call it Halloween. We call it Reformation Day. All right? It was October 31st, 1517, when an Augustinian monk, yeah, one of those dudes with a real weird haircut, took his 95 theses, theses basically 95 complaints against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, and he nailed it, see the hammer and nail behind me? He nailed it to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. That monk's name was Martin Luther. Luther was, again, he was a priest. He was hoping to bring some much-needed reformation or reforms to the Roman Catholic Church. He was not trying to start a revolution, but God had different plans. What Luther did that cool October day lit a match that caught the whole Western world on fire. The Reformation profoundly changed Western society. Tom Holland tracks some of these changes in his newest book, Dominion. Terry Johnson, in his book on the Reformation, says this. Listen, quote, Socially, the Protestant Reformation broke down the wall between sacred and the secular, leading to a fresh appreciation for marriage, family, and the ordinary tasks of life. This is one of the reasons we call ourselves Sacred City Church, because all of life is sacred. There's not a religious you and then the real you. No, no, there's one you that's standing before the face of God. If Martin Luther didn't do what he did, we would be calling ourselves Sacred City Church. Secondly, quote, politically, the Protestant Reformation led to the recognition of basic human rights and representative forms of government. How many of us like representative forms of government? Thank the Protestant Reformation. Economically, it promoted free market economics and gave workers a new sense of dignity in their laborers. Educationally, it gave impetus to universal literacy as the common people learned to read the Bible for themselves. In a word, the Reformation led to freedom, personal, political, economic, and intellectual. Things that you take for granted today. Everybody should read. Well, guess what? That came out of the Reformation. The rest of the world didn't think everybody needed to read. That came out of the Reformation. The Reformation profoundly changed our world for the better. But probably the greatest change was the way it changed the church. I need you to do a little thought experiment to put ourselves in the place of the people in Martin Luther's day. Imagine going to church and everything was done in Latin. Everything. And you don't speak Latin. You speak German, a common form of German, I might add, a street-level form of German. But you go into church and the Bible being spoken and read is in a different language from yours. Now remember, at this time, normal people did not own a Bible. The printing press had been uh, invented many years earlier, or several years earlier, but it was still very expensive to produce things. So most churches had one book. 
and scholars could, had, a book or two, had a Bible or so, but everyday people didn't have the Bible, didn't have it. If they did, could get one. It was not in their own language and they couldn't read, right? So you are biblically illiterate. You don't understand what the Bible teaches and you go to church and the priest reads the Bible in a different language, wears really fancy, funny looking clothes, pointed hat, not quite sure if he's a sorcerer or what he is, but he's somebody special, you know, because normal people don't dress like that. Right? And he does a lot of things, listen to this, behind a curtain that you are not allowed to go behind. The priest doing all of his stuff, there's a, a, a thin veil in front that you couldn't see it. It was too holy back there. Everything in the worship gathering was done by the priest or a select group of people. There was no congregational singing. They had a, little, they had a choir that sung in Latin and oh, Oh, that's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. What are they saying? I don't know. But it's beautiful, isn't it? Do you like singing? Thank Martin Luther. There was no preaching as we know it today. Instead, the center of the worship service is not the pulpit in the declaration of God's word. Rather, it's the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is not like it is today. Only the bread was given to the people. The priest alone could drink from the cup. See, priests were seen as spiritually superior to everyone else. We teach, and the Bible teaches, the priesthood of all believers. But you wouldn't pick that up by going to a Roman Catholic church during this day and age. Ordinary people did not know the word of God and so they were completely at the mercy of a corrupt Roman Catholic church. Now, one of the greatest abuses and examples of this corruption that sparked Martin Luther to seek reformation was the selling of these things called indulgences. Okay, now here's the, here's the situation. All of this you're like, indulgence, what's going on here? It's all, this is what ticked Martin Luther off so much. Here's the question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be forgiven of my sin, to know God and walk with God, okay? That was, the answer to that question is the most important question of our life. And the Catholic Church was teaching something that was false that the Bible didn't teach. And it was represented in this thing called the selling of adult indulgences. Here's what was going on. The Catholic Church wanted to fund the building of new, beautiful, very expensive churches, okay, cathedrals. And the Pope at the time had a lavish, ridiculous lifestyle and needed a way to fund it. But the common people of, of Germany were most, most of them were poor. And he knew, they knew if they put a tax on them, the poor people would revolt and rebel and start a war. So they couldn't tax them. So what they did was institute this thing called indulgences, which is really kind of a sin tax. Here's the idea. Every single person, when you sin, you owe a debt to God. Okay, that's, that's the reality. You owe a debt to God. Well, how can you be forgiven of that sin? Well, here's what they taught. If you buy an indulgence, if you buy this thing, it will pay down your debt. It will pay down your debt to God. Now, we kind of shake our head and what a bunch of crazy people. Why would they do that? But 
You can buy carbon offsets today. We're doing the same thing today. Oh, did you fly in a plane this week? Buy some carbon offsets to pay off some of your carbon sins. We do the same thing today. Martin Luther, though, he could read the Bible in his own, he could read the Bible in the original language. He had already been converted to Christ. He'd read the book of Romans. He saw the reality of the gospel. And when he saw the priest and the church doing this, he, it infuriated him. See, the Roman Catholic Church taught that salvation was a complicated process of grace and faith and works. You were not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. You were saved through your good works. And so here's where the indulgence is coming. When you do some bad works and you owe a debt to God, you can go buy or, or give your money away to pay down that debt. Or they also taught... Um, um, this concept, this non-biblical concept of purgatory, that a person, let's say they were baptized as a child, but then they lived a hellish lifestyle and they died in their sins, that old Uncle Johnny that did that, you could actually buy some indulgences for your uncle and buy him out of purgatory. Literally selling salvation. This infuriated Martin Luther and he saw it as a direct opposition to the teaching of scripture. The problem was he was just a priest. The whole Catholic church was against him and the people didn't know the truth that could set them free. Do you feel the weight of that? What is a person supposed to do when faced with such an impossible task when the culture around you seems so ignorant of the truth, so dark and depraved and corrupt, when it seems like all hell is set against you and you stand alone, like, am I the only guy that sees this? What's going on? Well, that is exactly where Martin Luther stood. But it's also where men of God who have come before him, they've stood there as well. See, in our text today, that's where Jeremiah stood. God's people were standing at a crossroads. Two roads lay before them. They could follow their own way and their own wisdom, or they could follow God's way and God's wisdom. Their way, God says, would lead to destruction, and his way would lead to peace and blessing. What are you going to choose I think that's where we stand as a people today as well. That our country is at a crossroads and the only options are destruction or reformation. Let me pray for us and we can get our text this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, that your word is light and we need it because we live in a dark world. That your word is straight and we are crooked and you straighten us out through your word. Father, I thank you that you can direct our thoughts, that you can, give, that you can put your thoughts in our mind through the preaching of your word by your spirit. And I ask that you would do that today. That I am just like everybody else in this room. I am just a man. I am just a sinner. And I need the grace of God through faith alone, in Christ alone. I need it. And so, Father, I pray that you would think through my mind and you would speak through my vocal cords that your people would hear your words and you'd bring the spiritually dead to life today and you would encourage those who are discouraged and you'd put steel in our spine from your word. 
Would you do this for your glory and our good this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. If you could open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 9. God is here saying, let me, let's, let's just go. Let's just jump in. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 9, and let's read today. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel like a grape gatherer pass your hand again over its branches. Okay, what's going on here? The people of Israel and Judah are in a very desperate situation. They've abandoned God. They've abandoned his law. They've abandoned his word. And, and they're about to experience the repercussions of that. Destruction is about to come upon them. Listen, the Babylonian empire is about to come in and take over uh, Jerusalem and carry them off into captivity. And God has sent a prophet, Jeremiah, to warn them. To show them you can repent and things can go well for you, but if you keep going your own way, it's going to go bad. And this is what, how Jer uh, the word starts here. He says what's going to happen if they don't turn, that Assyria is going to come in there and basically run his hand over, like you would run your hand over a vine of grapes, and you would pick all of the ripe grapes and you'd put them in a basket. That's what's going to happen. Assyria is going to swoop in and pick the best and the brightest of among you, and they're going to carry you off to Babylonian captivity. Keep reading, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? So Jeremiah is like, I want to tell the people and warn them for this is, going to, this is coming upon them. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Here's their problem. The people of Jeremiah's day don't care about God's word. They are not listening to God's word. They're not obeying God's word. They take no pleasure in God's word. So what's going to happen? Verse 11 through 13. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Feel the tension here of Jeremiah. He, he, listen, no preacher wants to get up and just say, hey guys, here's what's happening. If you don't repent, you're all gonna die and you're gonna be carried off into Babylon. That's, nobody wants to hear that message. I got something real positive encouraging for them this morning. They're gonna love me. No, he's weary of holding that message in, but it's the word of the Lord like fire shut up in his belly and he's got to let it out and he's got to preach it. This is what he says. Pour it out upon the children in the street. Ooh. And upon the gatherings of young men. Your disobedience to the word of God is going to affect your children and your young men. But also both husband and wife shall be taken. Taken. The elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. We see here that this is a society-wide problem. Everyone here, keep reading, look at verse 13. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. 
They're no longer worshiping God. They're worshiping the idol of wealth, the idol of money. Look at this. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. The religious establishment has also been corrupted by the gods of this age. What did that look like? What what did it look like for the priest and the prophet to deal falsely? Look at verse 14. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I think we could see the same thing is happening in our day today. What were the preachers of Jeremiah's day saying? They weren't saying, repent, repent, or the judgment of God is coming. They were saying, peace, peace, it'll be all right. God is gracious. Remember that one verse? God is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Let's just talk about that one. Judgment isn't coming. Give me a break, Jeremiah. You are unhinged. You are a little just too intense for me, Jeremiah. We can't handle that kind of stuff, Jeremiah. Just keep doing what you're doing, people. God loves you. God will bless you. It doesn't matter, you know, how you treat his word. It doesn't matter how far you have fallen from your relationship with God. Don't worry about the the abuses of the poor. You know, you're always gonna have poor people among you. Don't worry about the false prophets and priests that only say nice things to you. Oh yeah, worship God and he'll fill your barns with grain. Oh yeah, worship God and it'll go well for you. Worship God and he'll give you all your dreams. That's the message of the false prophets. Don't worry about how you are responding to God's words. You shouldn't feel guilty for your sins. You shouldn't feel ashamed for your shameful behavior against your God and people made in his image. How dare them make you feel guilty or make you feel shamed for something? Look at verse 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Is our culture ashamed right now when they commit abomination? Absolutely not. They're not. They rejoice in it. They celebrate it. They're forcing it to every single television show and every single book and every single curriculum. If you don't put abomination in it, then you'll be canceled. They did not know how to blush. How many of us, we, you can watch whatever you want on Netflix and you don't even blush. So what's the consequence? Oh, it'll be all right. Don't worry, it'll be all right. No. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punishment them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Here's what I want you to see. Jeremiah, Martin Luther, and us today all stand in a similar cultural moment. What are we to do when the darkness around us seems to swallow up the light? 
What are we to do when even the church is corrupt and its ministers crooked? We got pastors in our own city who have preachers come in on their own jets preaching a prosperity gospel for, for people's itching ears to hear. Jeremiah tells us what's going to happen or what our response should be in verse 16. The hope is found in verse 16, but it's a conditional hope, and I want you to look at it. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. Look, look, look. And ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your soul. Here's the choice that God lays out for his people. You can choose the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, or you can choose any other path and that path will lead to your own destruction. Now, just to be clear, this isn't some kind of blanket conservatism. Just go back to the old way. You know, back in the day when things used to be good. No, 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 he's not saying that. When he refers to the ancient path, he's referring specifically to the only way of salvation. He's referring to Moses and the Exodus. He's referring to the Old, uh, the Old, Old, Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. He's referring to everything that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. The ancient path is the gospel. The ancient path is the way of Christ. And he's saying, go back to that. Choose Jesus and find the good life. Choose Jesus and find rest for your soul. You remember when Jesus said that? Come to me, all who are weary, and you'll find rest for your soul. Remember that. Or choose your own path and be destroyed. Now here's what we need to see. This is history we're reading about. You can go back and read all of this. You can go back and read books on this and read and dive into the history. Here's what we need to see. Jeremiah proclaimed the gospel to them, proclaimed the word of the Lord. I ain't trying to hear that is what they said. And you know what happened? Everything God promised. Babylon came in there and stole the best and brightest of them, ripped husband and mother apart, raped women in the streets, killed children in the streets, and drugged them off to Babylon to live in Babylon for 70 years. I don't believe in the wrath of God. I don't believe in that. Do you believe in history? He's done it before. God used a worse nation to discipline his corrupt people for their sins. God is not mocked. A man will reap what he sows and a culture will reap what it sows. Verse 19. Now let's go read 17. You can see, but they said, we will not walk in it. We don't want your way, God. But look, here's the graciousness of God. I sent watchmen over you saying, that's prophets. I sent them to you say, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. The judgment's coming. Turn, repent of your sin. I, I sent people to tell you that. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to you. Hear, O earth, Behold, I'm bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices. He gave them up to the way that they want to go. We see this in Romans 1. 
because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they've rejected it. Here's what I want you to see. The greatest problem of Jeremiah's day was the same problem of Martin Luther's day and the same problem of our day. The people have not paid attention to my words, God says. And as for my law, they have rejected it. Jeremiah said they had uncircumcised ears. That means they did not know Christ. They did not follow the ancient path. They did not understand the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. And therefore they could not listen to his word. Jeremiah could preach, but he could not change people's hearts. Martin Luther could preach and write, but he could not change people's hearts. I can preach and I can podcast, but I cannot change people's hearts. But here's where the history of the Reformation can really encourage us right now. God can change people's hearts. And God has done it in human history. See, when we look at this, the task may seem impossible to man, but nothing is impossible with God. Luther did the same thing that Jeremiah did. He went back to the ancient paths. He went back to the word of God and not the word of popes and councils. Luther said, quote, the pope is not above the word of God, but under the word of God. This has been called the slogan of the Reformation. You see it on the sign behind me. It was Ecclesia Reformata et Semper Reformanda. And that is Latin for the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Now, why do we need reformation? We need reformation because we live in a world that tends towards disorder and disaster and it, it, it moves forward. Destruction. Think of it like this. You put a banana on the counter. That banana shows you what happens to life in the short term. That, that, that gives you like a fast forward version of what happens to everything in the world. That banana goes from yellow to brown in a couple days right? Everything else in life is doing that right there. It tends towards destruction. It tends towards chaos. It tends towards disorder, right? You, you buy a brand new car and you put it in the garage and you leave it alone. It won't take a week, but it'll take years, but that thing will rot where it sits. It won't get better. Your business left alone won't get better. Your family left alone won't get better. A church left alone won't get better. It gets worse. Everything tends towards destruction. It's like we're fighting a battle, like life is lived on a hill. <laughs> and we're always having to work up and work towards the top. And as soon as we stop, we start sliding down. It's like we're going against the stream in the Mississippi River. You stop swimming, whoo, downstream. That's what happens to everything in life and that's what happens to the church. It drifts down into heresy, into liberalism, into all kinds of idolatry if left alone. But if, so what's the answer? To be reformed according to the word of God and always reforming, always going back to the word of God and saying, oh, I think we've drifted. I think we've drifted. We need to come back to this. We need to come back to this over and over and over again. Now, with this simple reformanda, there were really five principles 
that summarize this ancient path that Jeremiah is talking about here, that the Bible shows us, and also that Luther discovered or rediscovered, and they were called the five solas. We're going to look at one of the solas each week over the next five weeks in detail, but let me share them with you briefly now. The first is called sola scriptura. It means scripture alone. Jesus said this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does this mean? This means that the Bible is our only ultimate and infallible rule of faith and conduct. What does that mean, Justin? When you want to know how to live your life, go to the Bible. When you want to know how to think about anything, go to the Bible. When you want to know the best way to form a church and build society and raise your kids, go to the word of God first. God's word overrides every other authority in the world. Everyone. The second is sola gratia. Grace alone. Salvation is all grace and only grace. Romans 11, five and six says this, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Grace and works mixed together like oil and water, like orange juice and toothpaste, like sin and righteousness. The next is sola fide. Salvation is through faith alone. Salvation is by the instrument of faith. All the faith and only faith. Faith all the way through. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Whoa, what's not my own doing? Faith. It is the gift of God. God gives you the faith that you need to believe him. You see that? not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What are we to do to be saved? Listen, we become Christians by believing God and we grow as Christians by believing God and our belief, our faith is a gift of God. Through grace, he gives us the faith that we need to believe the gospel. The next is solus Christus. Christ alone. We have one Savior, the Lord Jesus, and we are one with him, head and body together. When we come in, when he adopts us into the family, he adopts us into the body of Christ, the church, and he is the head. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How am I saved? Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He's the son of God. He left heaven. He came, put on flesh, lived the perfect life that I do not, that nobody else lived, that I don't live. He died a substitutionary death in our place to take the wrath of God in himself. And then he was resurrected, showing that he defeated death, hell, sin, and the grave. There is, no, there is salvation in no other name than Jesus Christ. Buddha didn't do that. 
Muhammad didn't do that. Krishna didn't do that. No cult leader's ever done that. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Our culture believes the lie of religious pluralism. There's no such thing. Every other religion is a lie. There's salvation in Christ alone. And that came as a gift of grace alone. Him, the God the Father, with the perfect standard and perfect holiness, and we screwed it up, sends the Son to do what we couldn't do. And then to pay the price for our wickedness. What? And then he's resurrected, and then he's glorified at the right hand of the God, right hand of the Father, and then he sends the Holy Spirit to fill us and to give us faith to believe it. And you know what that results in? Soli Deo Gloria. The glory goes to God alone for all things, and all the glory goes to him for our salvation. Think of it like this. Salvation is all his work. It's not our work. It's not a complicated mixture like the Catholic Church taught of our work and God's work and grace and, and our own obedience. No, 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 no. We are saved 100% full tilt by the grace of God. See, that gospel tastes like 130 proof bourbon. It burns all the way down just right. And what results in it? The glory of God, not us. See, when you're, oh, I'm a pretty good person. I, I've obeyed most of the commandments. I'm pretty good. If salvation is a little mixture of your work and God's work, then you get some glory for it. If it's all his work, he gets all the glory for it. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. So Martin Luther, reading the Bible in the original language, reads Romans, and he comes to understand the gospel is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And he starts preaching that in his little town, his little town church, in defiance of the Roman Catholic Church, and God chooses to use this priest to literally change the whole Western world. I'm so glad I'm not up here in some fancy dress this morning. How? A, a totally free God gives free grace to sinners. That free grace creates free men and women. And free people are dangerous to every kingdom that sets itself against the kingdom of God. Philip Schaff, a noted historian, writes this, quote, the reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the, becoming, the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief propelling, propelling force in the history of modern civilization. Why? Listen, this is what we need today. This is what the elders are praying for. We want this kind of church and this kind of societal change. 
We want it to be said of us like it was said of Paul and Silas in the early church when they were preaching that 130 proof gospel. Turn to Acts 17. Here's what happens. Paul and Silas, they are preaching the gospel and they're not going to be denied. The government told them to stop. Caesar told them to stop. We're going to put you in jail. We're going to fine you. We're going to beat you. And they said, okay, you can do what you do. I don't fear you. I fear God. I'm going to obey God. And look what happens here. This is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. They preach the gospel. He says this, and some of them were persuaded, verse four, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So God did a miracle and people responded to the gospel. Look what happened. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So men and women both responding to the gospel, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Hmm. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Jason was housing the apostles, okay? Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. They hated the message of the gospel so much, they wanted to, they tried to rile up all the people and get a mob and go into Jason's house and drag them out. Look what happened. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city city authorities. Before the city authorities. Shouting, these men who had turned the world upside down. First off, wow, what a reputation. I'm ready for us to have a reputation like that. These men have turned the world upside down. They're sitting there like, well, it ain't me, it's Jesus. But, cool reputation, keep going. Who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has colluded with them. Jason has received them. And look at this. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? Caesar claimed to be the ultimate authority. He said he was Lord over all life. I don't care. Caesar said, I don't care who you worship as long as you put me on top of everything else. As long as you put me up there, right? The civil authority, the government, the kingdom, as long as you put me up there, I don't care what you worship. You can go to church on your day off. That's totally fine. You want to do that? You go do that. Just put me over everything. And the apostles refused to participate with that idolatry. It's not Jesus plus Caesar. Jesus plus anything equals idolatry. It's Jesus over everything. And so when Caesar tells them to stop, they say, nah, you ain't got the authority here, son. And they keep preaching Jesus. They were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. You know why? Because there is another king. And every kingdom of this world will one day bow their knee. And you either bow your knee now and acknowledge his authority, or you will reap the consequences of ultimate destruction. And that's where our society is. We are reaping what we sowed. 
It's not a cliche that we've kicked God out of every domain of public office and every domain of public education and every domain, and now things are trending downward. That's not an accident. That's a judgment of God. And judgment starts at the house of God first. We've allowed it. We've lived just like it. And I look at this text the apostles are turning the world upside down. The gospel's changing people. They're defying the city authorities, preaching the gospel. Wild men, wild women. What's going on there? I'm so sick and tired of all the strategic strategery of churches around the world, trying to figure out how to reach all the cool kids in society. Do we really think that the apostles sat down in a boardroom and conjured up a strategic plan to, teach, to reach all the famous and top people in the city? Did Luther employ a state-of-the-art social media campaign in order to create raving fans and maximize market share to synergize customer loyalty and brand recognition? No, but we sure love all those buzzwords. No, see, Jeremiah, Martin Luther, the apostles in Acts 17, they discovered and rediscovered the ancient path. The only way for rebellious man to be saved from their sins and made right with God. And that was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, on the authority of scripture alone. Do we really think that there's a nice way to tell people they're sinners going to hell? Is that a, that's not a nice message, but it's true. It's true. And you should know it by just looking in your past a day, maybe. See, Jeremiah believed it. And it was like a fire shut up in his bones and he couldn't stop himself from preaching it. Martin, when Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel, he said, quote, he felt himself reborn and to have gone through the open doors to paradise. And that rebirth gave him the courage to stand his ground under the threat of death. That the Roman Catholic Church demanded that he recant his teaching. They brought him before the council, and they said, recant everything you've taught. Say it's a lie and turn your back on it. And this is interesting. I love what Martin Luther did. First off, all of our heroes of the faith have feet of clay, okay? They all have imperfections. Everyone does. So Martin Luther, he gets called before this council, and he stands, and they say, we demand you recant. And he's literally, he doesn't walk in, swagger, like, I defy popes, I defy everybody. He doesn't do that. He comes in shaking to death. And this is what it says. They tell him to recant. He goes, can I have 24 more hours? That was his first response. Give me another day to think about it. <laughs> I love it. He goes back. People are praying for him. He meets with God. He prays all night. The next day when he comes back together, this is what he says. So it took him a day to get his mind right, okay? And this is what he says, quote, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, 
I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. See, it was the gospel that gave Jeremiah and Martin Luther the courage to stand their ground when all the cultural waters were pushing against them. Both men preached the word of God in the midst of cultural and religious darkness. Here's what we need to see. The option for the people on the receiving end of that is the same option we have before us today. Believe the word of God or don't. The word of God, when it's preached, draws forth two responses and two responses only from the human heart. The word of God always produces fruit. It never does nothing. And here's the two things it produces. It either produces faith in the heart of person or it produces unbelief and apostasy in the heart of people. They receive it or they reject it. That's the only two options. There's no middle ground. Oh, interesting stuff. Let me think about it another night. No. For Jeremiah, the word of God fell on hard hearts and produced unbelief and the glory of God was seen in their destruction because of their rebellion. But guess what? When Martin Luther preached the gospel, the same gospel, it fell on soft hearts that had been made soft by the spirit of God and a harvest of righteousness grew up that changed a nation, a continent, the whole Western world. The question is, what will our response be? Here we are 504 years later and we've kept a few pieces that the Reformation gave us. We kept a few pieces that we liked and we've dismissed the God who gave them to us. And all of those good gifts that God has given us have become idols. Divorced from the creator, they're idols. Free market economics, idle. Representative government, idle. Education, idle. The family, idle. Divorced from God, they're all idols and God is set against all idols. He will do to us the same thing he did to the nation of Israel if we don't respond to his word with faith and obedience. That's the question this morning. Will you believe the word of God? Will you put your faith in Christ? If you will, you will find a freedom that cannot be found anywhere else. Listen, a man bound to Christ is free from every other Lord that tries to rule over them. But if you refuse to listen to the word of God and respond in faith to Jesus, listen, you will remain a slave. A slave to your sin. Like a dog returns to its vomit. A fool returns to his folly. 
You are slave to your lusts. You are slave to your idolatry of wealth. You are a slave to the opinions of people. Whatever your news feed is doing, you're like a kite in the wind. You just go with it. Oh, this is the new thing now that we're mad about? Oh, this is the new thing that we're gonna value? This is our new virtue? Okay. You're a slave. But a man who is bound to Christ is a slave to no one else. The choice is before us this morning. I pray that everyone hearing my voice would choose the ancient path where the good way is and walk in it. Choose Jesus and find rest for your soul. Father, you are a God who is not mocked. You are sovereign over all the kingdoms of men and you give them to whomever you wish. You lift one up and you tear one down. The nation that rejects you will reap the whirlwind. And in many ways, we have rejected you and we deserve the wrath of God but you as a merciful and gracious God, you've given us a shelter from that storm. And that shelter, the one and only shelter from the wrath of God is the person of your son, Jesus Christ. The son of God who did what no one else could do. Would even now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you give your people faith to believe it. Father, would you start a new reformation even today? Let our hearts not respond like the people in Jeremiah's day. Let our hearts respond like the believers in Luther's day. We're in Acts 17. Would you do this, Lord, for your glory alone? And now, we come to the Lord's table to remember what it took, what it took to save us from our sins, and that is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. He was broken for our transgressions. His blood was poured out to make our scarlet sins white as snow. And Father, we sit down now at a fellowship meal together with one another and with you because you have reconciled us through the body of your son and now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would we eat this meal in faith and would you fill us with faith to leave here today ready to know your will, to obey your law, to do what you've called us to do, to bring the gospel to our city. Would you help us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.